0: All right, hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapters 4 and 5. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church family. How good it is to be gathering together with all of you on this day. It's a wonderful day to be gathered together. I love being able to worship with each and every one of you, and I love the fact that our church is a church of community and a family. Now, here's the deal. I know the reality is there's been a lot of new people coming in lately, and it's harder and harder to feel like a community. Am I right? You can, head if you can understand what I'm saying. Some of you guys are the newer people. You're like, yes, it is hard to feel like community. <laughs> and honestly, that's, that's a problem that we have in America, in our Western culture. It, it is difficult to form community. It's difficult to feel like family sometimes when you're not actually immediate family. One thing I do want to share, and this is not even in my notes. I just felt compelled to share this is that one thing that unifies family, typically, immediate family, that's why you're connected so much, is that there's a bond that is stronger. Typically the bond of blood, of shared familiar relatives, this shared experience of depending on each other. And guys, can I tell you something? I know it's hard to understand sometimes, it's hard to grasp, but that's what we have in the church. We have a bond that's deeper. It's a bond of blood, it's the bond of Jesus. And we have this bond that can come into a shared understanding, a shared perspective, a shared and mutual needing of each other through Jesus. And we can have here what we call a community and a family, not just because there's a good words and cliche statements to have that groups can feel this way, but because of the true and real sense that the spirit dwells amongst us, and that's the bond that knits us all together through Jesus. Does that make sense? I know that's a weird statement. You're like, what does that mean, the Spirit? What does that mean, the Spirit? What it literally means is that there is a second person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit who is actively at work and that can knit our hearts together as you accept his move, as you're vulnerable, as you're open, as you're willing. But guys, can I tell you something, guys? Community and relationship, just like in any family, it's not easy, is it? It takes a little bit of effort, a lot of vulnerability, time. And so I just wanna start off by sharing, I know sometimes I say this, I say good morning family, I say good morning church family, and some of you guys might not feel like you're family yet. First of all, I want you to know some of you guys might feel like I don't deserve to be family. I haven't been here long enough, or I don't know enough people. just can not tell you, it's not about what you do or what you contribute that makes you family. You're family because of Jesus. Do you hear that? But I also want you to know that you can be. You can feel more like family as we gather together. We want to invite you into that. We want to invite you to feel like family. Cool? Is that okay? That's just a quick aside. I just, had to, I just wanted to start off with that. We're finishing up what we had here at Waypoint Church. which was our, week, our missions weekend. It's this awesome time of celebrating what God is doing around the world and reminding us of our vision and our calling. This past Friday, we had awesome evening celebrating and hearing about what God is doing around the world through Waypoint Church and his members and how we can be involved in this move. Yesterday, we had some trainings and discussions on everyday evangelism, on living overseas and business' mission. And we're closing this weekend today with this service, but the reality is, here at Waypoint, we're never closing missions. We are about the mission of God every, every Sunday. That is our heart and our reason to exist. Our desire as a church to see the kingdom of God advance by making disciples from every nation and tongue. We want more and more people to fall in love with Jesus and to live like him. So our missions weekend doesn't end today, it's an ongoing purpose. My people, that is the heart of Waypoint Church. And may we be on mission together. This morning, we're continuing in our series through the book of Luke, and we get to my son Hudson's favorite passage because it involves fishing. It's true, my son loves fishing. And in our scripture this morning, James calls Simon Peter and his business partners, Andrew, Peter's brother, along with James and John, to become his first disciples. Now this story is found in the other two synoptic gospels. And the first three books of the New Testament often called the synoptic gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of common material as their source material. However, Luke's account of Simon's call has some significant differences from the other two books. Luke has intentional purposes in his differences. For one thing, Luke f- focuses primarily on Peter. He's the only one mentioned by name, as, you guys, as you, in the reading you just heard. James, John, and Andrew are there, but only in the background, But in other Gospels, all four disciples are named and all of them are front and center. And for another thing, Luke records some significant conversations between Simon and Jesus that are not mentioned in Matthew and Luke. Luke provides an intriguing backstory that is missing from the other accounts. In Matthew and Mark, it seems like Jesus is walking by the lake shore, found some four random fishermen who have never met Jesus before, and when Jesus calls them to be his disciples, they drop everything and they become his disciples. And that could happen. I'm not denying that could happen like that. But for me, I've always had a hard time with this. I've always had a hard time with that version of the story because, you know, what person in their right mind is going to be like, drop everything and follow a complete stranger? If I'm going to commit myself to a leader, I want to know more about this character. I want to know what what this person stands for before I sign up on the dotted line. I always feel like the disciples had to, like, know more about Jesus before they signed up. Like, there seems to be more to this story. Am I right? I'm not going to just be like, if a random dude walks by and says, Follow me, I'm going to be like, Okay. I want to know more about the guy. That's why Luke is so important because he fills in the backstory and shows us that Simon actually knew Jesus before he stepped into the boat. Let's go back to chapter 4. In chapter 4, four verses 31 through 41, just prior to our story, Luke tells us that Jesus was preaching and healing in a town called Capernaum at the synagogue. The people there were amazed at his teaching. He probably taught what he taught during an earlier time. Freedom for the prisoner, the blind seeing, the oppressed free. Basically the good news of the gospel, of the Messiah. And Jesus not only preached this good news, but he backed it up by releasing a man from the bondage of a demon. Now Simon Peter had to be there while Jesus was preaching and healing because right afterwards, Simon invited Jesus to his home for supper. And while he was there, according to verse 38, Simon asked Jesus to heal his mother-in-law who was suffering from a high fever. Now, just a little side note, something that might be important, but this fever was probably a bigger deal than when we think about a high fever nowadays. In our day, you know, medicine and aspirin and ibuprofen and all that kind of stuff, kind of thinking fever is not a big deal. But back then, with no such medicines, high fevers in particular were an issue. One of my seminary professors was a missionary to India during the 50s and 60s. And he told us that even, even, that even then, it was not uncommon for people who got high fevers to die within a couple days. So this was a big deal for Simon and his family. And Jesus healed her so completely that she was able to get up and was able to be the hostess that she wanted to be. And welcome Jesus into her home. After supper, Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 40, at sunset... The people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one of them, he healed them. All of this means that Simon was not a complete stranger when Jesus stepped onto his boat. Simon had listened to Jesus preaching in the synagogue. He had watched as Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and had seen Jesus healed many other people right in Simon's own house. Simon had experienced enough of Jesus to make a good assessment of Jesus' message, his character, his authority, and his power. And Simon thought those were good things. So after spending night in Simon's house, chapter 4, 24 through 44, tells us that Jesus left and traveled around proclaiming the message all throughout the area of Judea. This means that when Simon and Jesus again meet in chapter 5, they probably haven't seen each other for, I don't know, a few days, maybe a few weeks. During that time, Peter must have been thinking over I mean, he just had a whirlwind experience. Jesus came and healed people. Jesus came and taught people. All of a sudden, now he's gone teaching somewhere else, and he's probably like going back to fishing and being like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this encounter? And that brings us to this morning's story. When we meet Jesus, he's standing on the lakeshore surrounded by a crowd of people. This is not the town, not the town of Capernaum, but rather people have followed Jesus out to the countryside. And they're pressing in around him, asking him to seal his, heal his people. Simon, meanwhile, has landed his boats on the shore, not far from where Jesus is. And the crowd and is all around him. and He's busy doing all the dirty work of cleaning up after a very six, unsuccessful fishing trip. Now, as an amateur fisherman myself, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an amateur fisherman, I know what it's like to clean up after a fishing trip. In particular, my father, when I was a kid, had a boat. We lived on the coast. We had this tiny little boat that probably broke down 75% of the time we were out there. My dad's best friend was a mechanic, and we always let him come with us so that every time it broke down, he would fix it. It worked out really well. But there was a huge difference between cleaning up your boat after a fishing trip if you've had a successful fishing trip and if you had an unsuccessful fishing trip. When you caught a ton of fish, you're cleaning, but you're kind of singing and whistling at the same time. You're like, yeah, I got fish in the freezer, in the icebox. I'm going to eat well tonight. My friends are going to get some food. It's going to be wonderful. When you caught nothing, you're like, oh, what am I going to tell my wife that I spent all this time doing and caught nothing to eat and a lot of money? And, oh, I hate this boat. It's so dirty. It never works. All-. My dad's words, not mine. <laughs> when you work all day and night and you caught nothing you still have to clean the boat, you're not singing and whistling. You're not happy at all. You're miserable. And I have more experience with the zero fish thing than with catching a ton of fish, so I know what it's like. Now here's Jesus with a crowd of people around him. And he gets out there and he realizes, okay, there's a ton of people around me, and either he's like, should I get away? We don't know. He's like, I want to get on the boat, just get away from all the people. Or he's like, maybe they can hear me better if I'm on the boat, which I probably think is the second part. But he sees these boats, and he's like, okay, there's a crowd of people around me. They're not hearing me very well. Let me get in the boat and step out a little bit. I have the press around me so I can actually communicate to these people. So it just so happens, which I love that, it just so happens to be Peter's boat. It just so happens to be Peter's boat, and Peter's like, whoa, that's Jesus. There's a crowd of people here. I just got done fishing. I'm cleaning my nets, and Jesus wants on my boat? Oh, okay. So Jesus gets on the boat, and they step off just a little bit from shore, and Jesus is able to teach To the crowds that are all gathered around. He gets to speak of the good news. Guys, remember, I want you to hear this. There's a reason why the people are gathered together. The reason is he's preaching hope. He's preaching truth. He's preaching what they need to hear. So he's preaching, and, and as he's done, when he's done with his message, he says to Simon, let's go fishing. Let's go to the deep water away from where we are, you gotta roll back out there, put your back back into it, and cast heavy nets again, go to the deep water. And Simon's immediate reaction is one of objection. He says, Master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Now, there are actually two parts to the objection. First is a professional objection. Jesus, you're a carpenter, buddy. We're fishermen. If we professionals can't catch the fish, what makes you think that you'll be more successful? In other words, be like, Jesus, you might wanna stay in your lane, man. Like, I, you're doing some good work here, don't, don't lose it, don't ruin it by you know, telling us to go catch fish. There's also a technical objection. And it's a good reason that fishing is done at night and not during the day. The reason that in Jesus' day, the fishermen used something called a trammel net. A trammel net was fished in sections and each about really long and straight lines enclosing a school of fish. They were made not of interwoven twine but of linen cloth, which would have been visible for fish during the day. This is why they fished with these trammel nets at night. So in reality, it's foolish to fish with these nets during the day, because the fish will see it, and they will not swim into these nets. But, and here's Simon being like, you don't know this, because you're a carpenter, Jesus, but I know this, I'm a fisherman. But in spite of his hesitation, Simon says this, Master, if you say so, I'll let down the net. David Guzik points out, the particular ancient Greek word Luke used for master is unique to Luke's Gospel. The word has ideas of commander, leader, or perhaps even boss. With this title, Simon showed he was willing to already take orders from Jesus. Simon has seen enough of Jesus in action that he's willing to take a risk and obey him. He's willing to row hard to do more backbreaking work at a time when he knows there's no way we're gonna catch fish. But for this guy, the commander, I'll do it. So they put out once again into the deep parts of the lake with you guys know the story, with miraculous results. They catch so many fish that their boats are about to sink, their nets are breaking. We're talking more fish than they've ever seen before, more than they probably even thought possible. But what I love, what I find so interesting, is Simon's reaction. And by the way, I'll keep on going back and forth between Simon and Peter. Sorry if I do that. I can't help myself. It's the same person. So if you hear me saying that, It's the same person. You can often call him Simon or Peter or Simon Peter. His name gets changed from Simon to Peter. So if you're confused by that, sorry about that. This is my kind of, that's what I sometimes I'll do. But his reaction is absolutely incredible. For all practical purposes, he just won the lottery. He just hit the jackpot. He just made it big. He made the biggest catch of of his fishing life. And that'll guarantee him financial security for a while. And if that was me, if I was Simon, I'm jumping up and down, I'm dancing for joy, you know, I'm making up new dances, I'm going to be on YouTube, I'm going to be sending text messages to all my friends. But that's not what Simon does. He doesn't jump up and down, he doesn't hoop and holler. But instead, Simon falls at the feet of Jesus. He says, get away. Look away, go away, don't be near me. I am a sinful man. That's not my response. That's Simon's response. You see, Simon's not overwhelmed by his good fortune. He's overwhelmed by his holy master. I don't want you to miss that. Because that's what often I do. I get overwhelmed that the gifts I've been given but not the giver of the gift. Do you guys hear that? Simon is stuck here and he's in the midst of a time where I should be like woohoo, dancing and jagging, in the midst of time, any one of us to be like, lottery, yes! In the midst of the biggest sale of my career, biggest promotion I've ever imagined, celebrating and singing, Simon doesn't do that. He instead goes, wow, God, look at you. Wow, Jesus, get away from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Guys, when someone meets God in the Bible, there's an immediate sense of the the, the awe, the majesty, the bigness of God. That's what Isaiah said when he saw him, when he met the Lord in the book of Isaiah. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Simon encounters Jesus and says, go away, Lord, from me. For I am a sinful man. I know that sounds like a bummer. You're like, well, should he celebrate? He met Jesus. This is a good thing. What's wrong to celebrate, Lawrence? And there's nothing wrong to celebrate. And it's not a bummer. But I want you to understand first that your encounter with God needs to be with him, not his gifts first. And we need to first look to the giver of the gifts then to the gifts itself. And when you do so, can I tell you that there's beautiful freedom that comes from knowing how big and majestic God is, and how small you are. Because here's the deal most of us struggle in this world because we all want to be God. We all want to control everything. And we try, so many of us try so hard to be in control, and we work and we strive and we attempt and we work and we earn and we do so much because we want to control our little world and insecurity and, 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 And so many fears creep in because we know honestly deep down we can't control everything because we don't have the power. But something beautiful happens when you start letting go and trusting that there is a bigger God who is in control. And you can say he is bigger than me. He has it all. And you see how small you can be. It's this beautiful situation that comes. I still remember this day when I was old enough as a kid to be like, you know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not scared of the dark anymore. I'm not, I am mean, I'm like, I'm an old kid now. Mom, I don't need a nightlight, Mom. I don't need to go. To, no, I'm not scared. And then one day you're like, I'm scared. And um, I'm going to just accept that. I'm going to go to my mom and dad's room. And be like, oh, okay, thanks mom and dad. There's a feeling of like, I'm just going to give it up and let it go and just be accepted and loved to be protected by my parents. This happened to me once when I was in, I still remember this, I was, school and grades was so important to me. And so more important to my parents. But, and I remember one nine nine weeks in in high school, I thought it was a good idea to skip a lot of classes. Not a good idea, children, don't do that. But I thought it was a good idea to skip a lot of classes. And I did. And I remember getting my nine weeks report card, and I was was like, you know, I was gonna hide it from my parents, because only the semesters counted. But I was gonna hide it from my parents. So they weren't going to see it. But for my history teacher happened to go to my parents' restaurant a lot, which I didn't think about that. And my history teacher walked in, and they're like, oh, you know, we set the report cards out. What did you think about Lawrence's report card? And my parents go, what? And I'm like, ah. Oh. So it wasn't good news. Needless to say, I didn't have good grades at nine weeks, and it was bad. But here's what, what changed for me is knowing and hiding that from my parents, keeping that from them, trying to control every little detail versus finally accepting that, Mom, Dad, I messed up. Mom, Dad, I need your help. Mom, Dad, will you accept and forgive me and will you help me? Produced a result in me that changed me. Produced a a contentment, uh, an ability to accept their love and to be a child again for them. Guys, can I tell you something? That the relationship that you are made for is that you are not made to be God. Can I tell you that? And as much as you want to be, as much as you want to control everything for your children, as much as you want to make everything safe for your, your children and for your family, as much as you want to control every little detail, you are not made to be God. You cannot be God. You're not powerful enough. You don't know enough. But can I tell you something beautiful? There is a God who knows you, who loves you, and you can rest and say, I'm done being God. God, will you be my God? You can fall at his feet. Does that make sense? Simon's caught up in something much bigger than himself. Jesus doesn't leave him in his inadequacy, but instead calms his fear and gives him a mission. I love how Jesus doesn't leave him where he's at, doesn't leave him in this state of being on his face and saying, don't look at me, Jesus, don't look at me, I'm, I'm a sinful man. He says to him, do not be afraid. And I love it, it's not just a simple do not be afraid phase. It literally says, it's like my parents saying, okay, you messed up, son, but I still love you. It's it's just, do not be afraid. That's loaded in meaning. It says, no, no, it's okay. You can look upon me. I'm here for you. Yes, you're a sinful man. That's who you are. Yes, you're not God. But I am and I'm here for you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And then he goes even further. He says, do not be afraid because from now on, you're going to fish for people. He goes from, don't be afraid. No, it's okay. Accept my love. Accept our relationship. Don't be afraid. I'm here for you. I love you. But then also, I love you so much that I want to give you purpose and meaning and significance in this world. Do not be afraid. You're called to incredible things. Elizabeth Johnson, professor at the Luther Institute of Theology, says this the Greek word for catching or for fishing used here is rare in the New Testament. But means to catch alive. Of course, fishing with nets was a matter of catching fish alive, but those live fish would soon be dead. Here, Jesus calls Simon and his partners to a new vocation of catching people so that they may live. A life-giving vocation of being caught up in God's mission of salvation for all. This Greek word has a connotation of catching alive, which literally is what they were doing. They're catching fish alive, but had double meaning. That's significant here is you're catching alive for the sake of living. Usually you catch alive for the sake of dying, but you're catching alive for the sake of living. It's a new life-giving vocation that was given to Peter and to the other called disciples here. They are to be fishers of men. And this is a beautiful and powerful and stimulating image, but it's an image that also has a backstory to it. In the Old Testament, in passages like Jeremiah 16, 16, the image of a fisher of men is also used, but it strikes a more ominous tone. Is always used of God himself. God is the fisher of men who fishes for men, catches them in his wrath and final judgment. But here, Jesus used that image. He applies it to the mission of his disciples. Not in an ominous way, but the note of threat is missing. A positive way, the note of encouragement, even the excitement. I'll make you fishers of men. Is an invitation meant to entice them and intrigue them and excite them to live in a different way. And the point is this, I think this is how we might say it, before the living God comes as the final fisher of men in judgment, Jesus Christ sends his people, his disciples, to go fish for men by the gospel that they might be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Go, and I will make you fishers of men. He takes the seeming threat out of the Old Testament, we might say, and turns it into an adventure. A grand adventure of of a life lived in the service of Jesus Christ and on mission that he gives to us. You see, when Jesus calls you to himself, he never calls you to keep him to yourself. When Jesus calls you to himself, he never calls you to keep him to Himself. He calls you to himself and sends you to others. Disciples are called to make disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you know a little bit of church history, you may actually know that the grand adventure that the disciples actually go on from here. Peter becomes a fisher of men all the way to the city of Rome, where he gets crucified upside down. James, we're told, goes into the borders as far as the borders of Russia, fishing for men. John became a pastor of the churches in the city of Ephesus, fishing for men. They were swept up in this great new cause that dominated their hearts and filled them with a boldness and a joy that sent them to the ends of the earth. Guys, I want you to hear this, this beautiful mission. One day, judgment is coming. One day, God will make all right and new. Till that day, Jesus calls you on a grand adventure. He calls you to catch alive to life. He calls you to catch alive to life. That is our calling to be fishers of people. Now, what I want to do really quickly is I just want to give you a few pointers on this morning using the analogy of fishing and what it means to fish for men. Number one, if anybody's ever been fishing, fishing requires great patience and sacrifice. We all know this about fishing, right? Most kids hate fishing because you just sit there a lot and you just kind of wait for the the fish to bite the bait and you just kind of hang out and a lot of people don't have the patience for it. Fishing for men requires patience. St. Augustine's mom famously prayed for years upon years with passionate devotion for her son to know the Lord. Sometimes it takes a long time, but we're called to be patient and persistent in our fishing for men. Can I tell you this? There's so many in this room who I know that someone's been praying for you, someone's been sharing the gospel with you, someone's been planting seeds and watering you, So we saw the fruit that came to your salvation. We need to be patient in our fishing for men. But also it takes sacrifice. It costs money. My son Hudson wants to fish every day. He seriously does. And it doesn't even cost me that much money. I can just go find a random, I can find a bathtub and fill it up with water and be like, hey, we're fishing. And he'd still like that. But what I say it takes my time. I'm going to be honest with you. I have to go buy worms and buy more bait. And when we go fishing with him, like literally we probably, he catches more like leaves and sticks that I have to lose like hooks in. So I'm like, oh, I've got to tie more knots. It does take sacrifice. Fishing takes sacrifice. My dad spent way too much money on that terrible boat. It's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. Two, Jesus invites us to fish, not to hunt. Now, here's how I'm describing that difference, okay? Fish are drawn in by bait. Hunting is a little more stalking. <laughs> Does that make sense? You guys with me real quick? Now, here's what I mean by this analogy. I know it's not fully accurate, but here's what I mean by it. We're to exude Christ. Our speech needs to be full of gentleness and respect. People need to be attracted to us like honey, like salt. They need to see, wow, that's the the preview of the kingdom, the church, and the way they show grace and love and forgiveness and mercy. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like? That's good bait. I need to be drawn to that. Does that make sense? Rather than hunting, you want to be drawing. You with me? Please hear me. The analogy is not perfect. So I don't want you to be using this all the time, but I'm just saying that, that one point of it. We need to be drawing people in by the way we live and act and love. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Three, and I love this one. The church is a fishing vessel, not a pleasure boat. Yeah, you guys with me on that? The church is a fishing vessel, not a pleasure boat. Guys, I spent my life, I was kind of raised Panama City Beach, Florida. I I love boats, I love fishing, but I know the difference between a pleasure boat and a fishing vessel. A pleasure boat wants to take in the sights in comfort and luxury. Its overall purpose is to avoid the mess, to avoid difficult situations, to provide maximum comfort for the experience of the passenger. Let me say this. I believe that the church in the West and often many churches around the world have made the mistake of turning into a pleasure boat rather than a fishing vessel. Can I say that again? I believe that many churches have fallen into this category and I believe it is something that we need to be very, very careful of and intentional about. We're not caught here to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We're not here to be comfortable in our little lives, adding Jesus on his fire insurance. We're not called to come together with people that we already like and we already get along with and we'd already hang out with anyway so we can have a country club so we can just gather together and have a good time and raise our kids together. Do you hear me? We're not called to be a pleasure boat. We're supposed to be a fishing vessel. And on a fishing vessel, everything is built, everything is placed there, in place, for the ease and the ability to fish. There's a purpose behind every instrument and tool on a fishing vessel. It doesn't mean it's skimped, fishing vessels have a high-tech equipment, they do all sorts of stuff, but it means that there's an intentionality, there's a purpose behind it, and it's not our own personal comfort. It's to catch fish. Is to bring the owner of the fishing vessel, the profit that the owner needs. Our church exists to be a fishing vessel, to catch fish, to bring glory to God. May we always, always be intentional about this church. May that be what drives us, not our comfort, not our preferences, but our mission. Amen? Now, this leads me to my fourth point, when it talks about fishing vessels, is not everyone is given the same role on the fishing boat, and some people are more skilled in certain areas. You guys hear me very well? What I mean by that is, there's some on the boat who are really skilled at keeping it running, like my dad's best friend. He loved going on that fishing boat, and my dad loved having him because he can keep the boat running. The engineers, are those good at keeping the crew fed on a fishing vessel. There are people who are good at keep, uh, fixing nets, or there are also people who are actually just good at hooking and landing the fish. There are different giftings and different skills on the fishing vessel. We're not called to compare ourselves to each other. Some people are really gifted and skilled and created and given the personality and everything to be really skilled at evangelism. And that's a good thing, we thank God for that. It doesn't mean that everyone is though. Did You hear what I'm saying? There are different roles to play in the fishing vessel. You're gifting, Doesn't make, doesn't give you more worth than anything else. It's just a gifting that God's given you to be skilled at it. So there are some people out there who are really good at fishing. I'm not one of those people. But I'll try. Can I tell you, some of you guys, there are some people out there who are really good at meeting strangers, sharing the gospel for the first time with other people. There are some people like, I'm not that good at that. And that's okay. Hear me very well when I say that. There's no guilt in that. There is no guilt if you're sitting here and you're like, Lawrence, I'm just not the best at like, sharing the gospel out loud with a stranger for the first time. Most people aren't. Just throw that out there. But here's what's not okay. It doesn't mean that you're not part of the team. It doesn't mean that what you're doing has any lower significance. God's given you your gift. He's given you your gift. He's given you your gift as long as you step in tune with the mission of God together. Amen? Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? Number five, there is great joy in fishing. My son Hudson, if he was here, he'd be a big amen on that one. He's a preach preacher, that's what he would say. My son and I went out to a little pond, me and Hudson, we went out to a little pond next to a bunch of houses, just this random little pond next to a bunch of houses. I wasn't expecting to catch anything there because that's what my has taught me. My time fishing with Hudson, we don't catch fish. We just cast it for a while, and then I get really bored of catching nothing, even though Hudson wants to keep on going. And then I'm like, Hudson, can we go home now? (laughs) That's been my experience. But Hudson still wanted to go fishing, so we went. Nice little, tiny little pond next to somebody's house. Then all of a sudden, as we're fishing, I'm reeling in a fake lure, got a little grub on, I'm reeling in, and all of a sudden I felt this huge bite. I'm like, what, is that a fish? And I'm like, Hudson, and and fish on. So he comes running over and we reel it in together and we bring the fish on the shore and man, we were pumped. High fives, dancing, more high fives, more dancing. We took like a million and a half pictures. It was this huge bass. Huge, huge. <laughs> it was this big bass, right? And it was so fun. Some of you might have even received a text message with that picture on it because I did send a lot of those. There was great joy in that time. Hudson and I, were, man, we we were having a ball. Man, there's great joy in fishing because something that you were going after, something that you wanted, happened, happened. But so much infinitely more, there's great joy when we were fishers for men. When you get to pray with someone who accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, what greater joy can there be? When you know that what you're doing lasts for eternity. When you know, even if you don't see that moment happening, when you know that there's nothing that you speak in the name of Jesus that is in vain, when you can have confidence that even the seeds that you plant, even though you don't see it come to fruition, you know God will do something with it. What joy fills your heart. When you know that the work you do has significance and purpose, when you know that there's more to life than just making money and being comfortable. What joy can fill your heart? There is great joy in this calling. The Bible says the heavens celebrate. The heavens rejoice when just one lost sheep, one lost coin, one lost son, one person, and we are fishers for men. Waypoint Church, this is a significant calling that our master has placed upon us That we're called to do together. To never be a pleasure boat, but to be a fishing vessel together. I thank God for this calling. I thank God that he allows us sinful people like Peter, who should be falling at the feet of the master. Instead, he lifts our heads up and says, Don't be afraid. You're not alone. I'm your God. And you have significance in this world. You have a part to play. And we have this grand adventure that we're all embarking on together. Will you join them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you've called us to you and the way you call us to be fishers of men. (laughs) What joy fills our hearts. May we take seriously the mission placed before us. May we know and love you well, and may we share the gospel with the world around us and be fishers of men. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
2: Amen. At this time in our worship service, we're going to come together and partake in the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. Uh, We normally take it on the first Sunday of the month, and the third Sunday, but today is actually the fourth Sunday. we there's five Sundays in January, so we made it second and fourth uh, but the first Sunday of the month we try to really spend time on confession and we believe at Waypoint as as the Lord's Supper is presented in the uh, in the Gospels and then again in the in uh, acts and in first corinthians there's multiple elements that we are to re- use partake in, as we're partaking in this meal. And, and one of those elements is remembrance. So this morning, we're going to reflect on just remembering what Christ has done for us, and just loving Him and thanking Him. I love the story of Peter, uh, Simon Peter, that Lawrence preached on this morning, because Peter knew that he was a sinful, broken person. He knew if, if someone could really see the thoughts of his heart, that there were parts of him that just he was ashamed of. He, was, he knew that if, if he, he felt like, I can't be forgiven. If this person represents God, I can't be forgiven. But Jesus raises him up, and he says, not only are you forgiven, I'm going to call you, and you're going to be on my team. And he, Jesus literally changes his name to Peter. And I think it's that humility that Jesus saw in Peter. So let's come with a humble heart and just say, God, I'm broken I need you and remember what Christ has done for us in Isaiah's gospel 600 years before Jesus came it says he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground this is speaking of the Messiah he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, And by his wounds, we are healed. By the wounds of Jesus, you are healed. Please, when you come, this is for believers, for those who have called upon the name of Jesus. If you call upon him today, you can come and take this meal. Come and remember that you are healed. I'm going to ask the servers to come up. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is remembrance, which is broken for you do this and remember to me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember the blood that was shed until Jesus comes back. And we're going to do that this morning. So here at Waypoint, we practice something called intinction and you're going to be handed a little cracker and you will dip the cracker when you, the server will hand the cracker to you and then you will dip that cracker in the juice. You can eat it immediately or you can take it back to your seat and take some time to reflect. If you are going to take it back to your seat, please uh, just dip a little bit. You I mean, you can drip on the floor. It's okay. It's God's house. It's his floor. It's his carpet. We don't care. But... We're so grateful for this time to come together for this meal. If you're in this section over here, you guys can walk up there. This section will come to us. You guys will go there, and you guys will go there. Just take time and remember and reflect. And the beautiful thing about today's communion service is uh, Gina will be singing a song that is literally about remembrance and reflection. So we're going to, as you're partaking and as you're at your seats, we're going to sing and reflect and remember. So let's take this meal together and remember what Christ has done for us.
3: Take the bread of life Broken for all my sin Your body crucified To make me whole again I will recall the cup Betray the sinner's end for your new covenant. bread of life broken for all my sin your body crucified to make me whole again I will recall the cup poured out in sacrifice to the sinner's end.
2: Father, we praise you for sending your son and anointing him by the Holy Spirit to come into the world to enter into the brokenness at just the right time to suffer and die and rise to new life so that we can be free so that no matter what happens to us no matter how life is hard life is we know that you're with us and you've given us your peace And we can be vessels of that peace to others and love them and point them to the hope that is found only in the name of Jesus. That's our prayer, God. We thank you that we are forgiven people. We thank you that we are healed people. We're wounded people, but we're forgiven and we're healed by the blood that was shed and the body that was broken and was raised to new life and anointed with the Spirit. God, we praise you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we thank you for this meal that we get to come and remember you And may we continue to sing in remembrance and we pray this in jesus name amen